It's great to be with you all here this morning. For those of you that not, I've not had a chance to meet, my name is Kevin Harlan, and I serve on the pastoral team here at Christ Community. I have the joy of working across all four campuses, actually uh, leading and uh, being a part of the team with our campus pastors. Uh, in other words, I'm Nathan's boss. Uh, so I know you might be thinking one of two things here at this moment. Finally, I know who I should talk to. Uh, that could be what you're thinking. Or, or I, I hope you're thinking what I think you're thinking is that, okay, he's the person smart enough to hire Nathan and try to keep him around. So, um, but just let me be clear with this. You, and you, I probably don't have to say this. I had little to do with uh, Nathan um, being here and God's provision of Nathan and Kelly uh, actually, the way it played out is that Nathan was here as a fellow. We hired Kelly on our staff, and then we didn't want to lose Kelly, so we had to find a place for Nathan. <laughs> and then he grew on us, so we just actually liked having him around. So, um, no, seriously, I am so thankful for Nathan and Kelly, and uh, it's it's crazy to think that it's been nine years that we've been working together. Uh, hard to believe how the time goes uh, by so quickly. So does anybody here like to play games? I mean, that's, yeah, well, there we go. I see hands. Good. Thank you. I'm a game lover. Uh, Sharon and I love to play board games. Uh, we love to play card games. When our kids are around, we play video games. Uh, I feel a little guilty doing that now with our kids out of the house. But uh, any type of competitive sport we engage in, except running, by the way, which I don't actually consider a sport. It's more like a form of torture. Um, <laughs> But if you're a game lover, you know that one of the most important aspects of any game is knowing the rules. What's the object of the game? How do you play it? What are the boundaries? And if you know, if you happen to have any sort of competitive leaning, which we do at our house, it doesn't take you long to find loopholes in the rules. Or to find ways that you can bend or modify the rules to make the game more fun, which translated means to give you a greater chance of winning. For example, uh, any Monopoly lovers here? Okay, I know I just lost a good number of you because that's a game you either hate or you love, right? So there's some of you that have sworn you'll never play that game again because it turns your spouse into somebody completely different. <laughs> I'm one of those people. Well, in Monopoly, there are rules, and then there are many variations of those rules that have sort of come out over time. And anytime you go to play Monopoly with somebody, you have to ask the question, okay, what rules are we playing by? Um, because there, those rules have a way of just sort of seeping out in the middle of the game, always to your disadvantage if you don't know them up front. Inevitably, at least at our house, there's some moment in the game where the rule sheet is usually pulled out in what becomes like this competitive moment. And then somebody will always say, well, we've always played it that way. Or take golf. Any golfers here? I, I love the game. Um, and when I was learning, I realized pretty quickly that I hated to have a score with triple digits. You know, a score in the hundreds is not good in golf, if you're not familiar with it. I just hated writing that number down. Because, you know, inevitably someone always asks you, what did you shoot? And I just always hated having a, a number in the hundreds. So I learned to fudge just a bit. <laughs> to modify the rules to get my score down in the 90s. 
a mulligan here, a foot wedge there. You know, foot wedges don't count. Repeat, repeat. And guess what? My score is in the 90s. And it didn't take me long for me to dislike the 90s. And so as I was improving as a golfer, I continued to modify the scores and quickly got down in the 80s, which, by the way, modifying the rules in golf is called cheating. <laughs> and my score dropped down into the 80s. And really for about the last 20 years, my score has not improved at all. But I do play by more of the rules. You see, rules are meant to give order and to create a way for all of us to have fun as we play games or as we live life. But if we're honest, those games often reveal a truth about us that we don't like to admit, is that we have this love-hate relationship with rules. We love the order they bring, and we really, if you stop and think about it, we wouldn't want to play a game without them. I mean, just imagine basketball without the out-of-bounds. But at the same time, rules often cramp our style, don't they? We find them confining and restrictive. And so we bend and we break these rules for the sake of our own fulfillment or satisfaction. Can anyone relate to the general tendency to bend and break rules? Or is this that awkward moment where you realize your pastor has issues? Well, if you're tracking with me, let me just ask you this. If you were God, and it's always a, you know awkward moment to start. If you were God, just pretend with me for a moment. If you were God, and the people that you had created and given them clear rules for how to get the most out of life, if those people repeatedly broke the rules that you set up for them, rules that were intended for their good, what would you do? Would you give them a new set of rules? Maybe more supervision? Or would it just be something completely different? Well, as we come to Hebrews 8 this morning, I believe this is the question that the preacher sets out to answer. What is God going to do with his rule-breaking people? And I think we'll hear this loud truth, or this truth loud and clear, that we don't need more rules. We need a new heart. So if you have your Bibles with you and you want to follow along, if you're not already there, let me encourage you to turn to the book of Hebrews. We're going to start out in the 8th chapter. Uh, you can find that somewhere near the end of the Bible, by the way. Uh, just go to the end, flip back. Now, as you remember, as we've been going through this book of Hebrews, uh, the Hebrews actually started out as a sermon. It's likely that it started out as a sermon. Uh, a sermon that the, the manuscript, it was so popular that the manuscript of it uh, went viral in, in a 2,000-year-ago sort of way. And it was distributed among the churches as Christianity began to rise. And when we come to chapter 8, the preacher uses a common oratory or speaking tool to sort of gather back his listeners. We're almost right in the middle of the book, and he's gathering back his listeners and says, now, now, the, the point I'm saying in this Here's the point I'm trying to make, Hebrews 8.1. If, if you were here last week, and I know not many of you were, uh, 
But if you were here last week, it was a snow day, by the way. That's why you weren't here, and that's okay. Uh, it, it's not hard for you to understand. But that was meant to be funny, and it came across condemning. So I just want <laughs> to call that out for a moment. And uh, I feel like I, I was chiding you, and I didn't mean to do that. So, uh, Well, if you were here last week, you understand that this is a good moment for the preacher to stop and give a bit of a summary. I mean, you can sort of imagine that his congregation has these glazed look, this glazed look on their eyes, because he's been talking about Melchizedek, and Jesus is the high priest, and what is this? And so the preacher summarizes and reminds them that Jesus is this true and better priest. And because of this, they have nothing to hide, nothing to fear, nothing left to prove. And then the preacher builds on a previous idea back in chapter 7. Just turn back a chapter there to 7. Look in verse 22 with me. In the middle of this message, there was a little segment that I I just want to pull out for a moment. The preacher says this in 722, that this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. A better covenant? Let's just face it for a moment and just say, okay, we don't use the word covenant very often, right? At least not outside of church. So before we look at what it means to be better, we probably just ought to start with a baseline question of what's a covenant? Probably our best present-day example of a covenant is a contract. And a contract is nothing more than a written form of promises that you are making to one another. And you see, throughout the Old Testament, God made a bunch of crazy promises to his people, telling them what he was going to be doing in the days ahead. He promised a childless old man named Abraham that through his descendants, he would make a great nation, a great nation of God's people, and that the whole world would be blessed through them. He chose a man named Moses, a man who certainly didn't want to have the job, And told him that he would use him to free God's people, figuratively and literally, from slavery. And it's through Moses that he gave his people his law, or rules, to live by. 613 of them. He found this scrawny shepherd boy and told him that he would make him a king. And that through him there would be a great line of kings, including the Messiah, who would come to reign as the king for all eternity. And his kingdom would never fail. And as I was thinking about those promises that God made with those three individuals, Abraham and Moses and David, over this past week, and just pondering those those moments in history, it dawned on me that a contract falls short of trying to explain or trying to capture the complete idea of the covenant. It's just, it's missing something, right? I think we all can get that. Because see, a a covenant has both a promise and a relationship. And let me illustrate it this way. Can you imagine at any one of those moments with the three of them, that after God spoke to them, that one of the three of them would have said, "Um, you know, God, that's great and all, but could I get that in writing? That just wouldn't fly, would it? Because of the relationship. 
You see, a covenant is no less than a promise, but it's so much more. It's a promise and a relationship with a God who loves us, who cares for us, who wants the best for us. Now, if you've read the Bible, and I don't know if you were here last year as we went through the Old Testament or as we went through the entire Bible through open here, and we were reading the Old Testament, if if you've come to those points in the Old Testament, you recognize that God's people are not holding up their part of the covenant, right? God's people break rules over and over and over, and yet God continued to be faithful to his end of the deal. To be honest, it's hard to read the Old Testament. If you come to those moments, it's hard to read the Old Testament and the demise of God's people and not think that something is not working. Just this feeling gnawing at you that it's just not right. Something's missing or maybe someone's missing. And when God's people were at a low point, a prophet named Jeremiah entered the scene with words of hope for a scattered and weary people. And Jeremiah spoke to them about a new covenant that God would make with them. There would be dancing, there would be rejoicing. God promised to restore their fortunes, to satisfy their weary souls, to build them a new city, a city that would never be conquered again. And if you were God's people in this place of captivity and in this place of pain and struggle and wondering if anything would ever change, these words from Jeremiah would have been remarkably comforting and hopeful to you. It's hard not to picture how these words would have been a great source to God's people, a great source of hope. And because of this, it's likely that these words from Jeremiah were spoken often. God's people memorized them pass them on from generation to generation. And time passed over 500 years. You know, sometimes we read the Old Testament, we read the Bible, and we just miss the the length of time. God makes this promise of a new covenant covenant through Jeremiah, and 500 years pass. And nothing is new And we can only imagine that any hope that they might have had for something new or something different was beginning to fade away. And so now here we are back in the book of Hebrews and the preacher stands before the congregation. People who are likely familiar oh so faintly with Jeremiah's words and he helps them connect the dots to tell them that the new covenant is now here. Look with me at chapter 8, starting in verse 6, as Dana read for us. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them. The preacher calls it out here. The old system is not working and something new is needed. This is the idea behind the phrase, if the first covenant had been faultless. It wasn't working. I believe we're given a clue as to sort of why it's not working. At the start of verse 8, that he finds fault with us. 
God, God's people did not hold up their end of the deal. You know, Jeremiah gave us that clue. If you look in the book of Jeremiah, before the promise of the new covenant, Jeremiah spoke words that we feel all too often, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? After letting them know the system was broken, the preacher wastes no time in, imp- in answering a very important question for us this morning. What is this new covenant? And to help them understand, the preacher actually goes back to Jeremiah 31. Verses 8 through 12, those five verses, is the longest quote of an Old Testament passage in the New Testament. And it's clear that the preacher wants this congregation to hear these words again against this backdrop that he's laid out of Jesus as this new high priest. So look with me at verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. In this, I think we find the first description of the new covenant, that it is internal, not external. Now, this is counterintuitive for us self-made, pull-yourself-up-from-your-bootstraps sort of Americans. Although we know that it usually doesn't happen this way, sometimes we live as if we believe that change happens from the outside in, not the inside out. You see, our bookstores are filled with self-help titles promising you that you can change your life by your outside actions. But let me, if you're, if you're not aware of this, let me be the bearer of bad news. Even though I think you already know this, you can't do this in the Christian life. The Christian faith tells us that change, that true change is internal. It's not external. God's law is written on our hearts. We're changed from the inside out. I love the way Richard Foster talks about this when he writes these words. He says, The contrast between God's way of doing things and our way is never more acute than in this area of human change and transformation. We focus on specific actions. God focuses on us. We work from the outside in. God works from the inside out. We try. God transforms. And if we really stop and think about it, thank God this is true, right? Trying to be a good Christian or a good person by external action, it leads to pride on the good days and despair on the bad ones. It leads us to dark places when we are criticized because we overvalue what other people think of us and undervalue what God thinks of us. It leads us, when we are trying to put our focus on these outward actions and change from the outside in, it leads us to be angry with God when bad things happen or difficult things happen to us. We sort of feel like, God, can't you see I'm trying? And we think we deserve something better. We want to take control, be in control, and to take action. But this is not the way of the new covenant. 
God has to change your heart. And this leads to, I think, the first step that we all must take in this new covenant, that we need broken hearts. Now, I don't know where you are this morning, but let me just ask, are you still trying to save yourself by keeping all the rules? Although you're tired and weary, are you just determined and stubborn enough to try to push through the pain? Just hear me on this. True transformation does not happen like that. It does not happen until your heart is broken and you give up and you allow him to change you from the inside out. This leads to the next aspect of the new covenant. Look with me at verse 11. The preacher continues on quoting Jeremiah and says, And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. You see, as he changes our heart, it becomes clear that the new covenant is about a new relationship, not more rules. You remember how I said this covenant is both a promise and a relationship? Well, in the new covenant, the focus is to be on the relationship, not on the rule keeping. As Jeremiah worded it, we will all know him. Now, this is a radical shift for for God's people, the focus for God's people. After thousands and thousands of years of rule keeping, rule keeping as their path to salvation, it's now about a person. We, we sometimes miss this. I mean, we sit in it and we think, oh, of course it's about a person. But just recognize after years and years of rule-keeping as the path to salvation, it's now about a person. And because of this, I think we get to the second thing that we all need. We need affectionate hearts. You see, our broken and transformed hearts should, be, should focus on the love of a person not on keeping and tweaking the rules to live by. Now, let me just stop for a moment, because you might be asking a question inside your head that I just want to answer right now. This does not mean that we aren't supposed to strive to live the way that God designed us to live. For we know, don't we, that all rules and all laws actually are designed for our good. They're meant to provide the path to human flourishing. But you see, our reason for keeping them now changes. We're doing so out of love, not as this self-salvation project. It's interesting, if you look at Jesus in speaking with the disciples, in John chapter 15, we see that Jesus actually, I think, tried to address this motivation of the heart with his disciples just before he left them the night before his crucifixion. He told them that they would prove to be his friends by obeying what he had commanded. But he said there should be a different motivation. Remember this passage of scripture? He says that they were no longer his servants, but they were now his friends. You see, servants follow rules. Friends follow the affections of their heart. So let me ask you this morning, 
What are the affections of your heart? What do you really love? You know, we discover this, by the way, by the things we get excited about, where we spend our time, how we spend our money. So let me just ask, are you loving the things that you should be loving? If not, let me urge you to do the work that St. Augustine introduced to us as an early church father long, long ago when he talked about our need as followers of Jesus to be continually reordering our loves. You see, Jesus, the one who came to make a better promise, a new covenant, longs to transform your heart and to be in relationship with you, to call you friend. But we have a hard time getting our head and our heart around this, don't we? I mean, how could Jesus, who knows all and sees all, really desire to have a relationship with me or with you? I mean, surely we need to clean ourselves up just a little bit, right? I mean, just think about how furiously we work to get our house in order before someone comes over because we don't want them to see the way we really live. Wouldn't we have to do the same with Jesus? Well, I think the preacher anticipates this response from the congregation and from us and addresses it head on, head on and reminds them of Jeremiah's words. Look with me at verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. In other words, this new covenant is about erasing. It's not about earning. He knows you cheat. He knows you're horrible at keeping the rules. He knows that your heart is desperately sick and deceitful. And yet he still longs to know you, to love you, to be your friend. Often, we just can't believe this, can we? We think it's too good to be true. And it leads us down a path where we actually question, is it true? We have a hard time forgiving ourselves, much less believing that God actually forgives us. Which I think points to one of the most difficult aspects of the Christian faith, is that we need a trusting heart. I don't know if this is true of you, but let me just put it in the first person. I stink at trusting. I mean, we want a God who forgives, right? But how can we trust a God of justice who has a very high standard and who, through all the pages of Scripture, is very tough on disobedience? And so we verbally profess our trust in God, but our lives tell a different story. We live frantic, worried-filled lives just trying to survive by working on keeping the rules. But he calls us to so much more. You see, the new covenant calls us to give up on trying to save ourselves and to trust in a God who has come near and invites us to draw near 
a God who forgives you, who longs to know you, who can give you a new heart. Jesus spoke these words to his disciples, I think, to help them know that he can be trusted. And I think he speaks them to us here this morning. He said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in me. Trust in me. I'm not sure if there's a greater display of these three aspects of the new covenant. Broken, affectionate, and trusting hearts than when we gather together for a baptism service, which we did two weeks ago here at the Olathe campus. Watch. Hello, my name is Gabe Coyle, and I'm the campus pastor at our downtown campus. And it has been an absolute delight over the past couple years to get to know Asher, but especially this past year, I've never met a more passionate guy for the gospel. Just to give you an example, when he was talking about baptism, he said, why don't you just hold me under for a little bit? I want to feel being under the water. And I said, man, hold, wow. You know, so just hold his breath, right? So here we go. Well, Asher, um, have you professed Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior? Yes, I, I believe that Jesus Christ has destroyed sin and death and has given us eternal life and whole life, not only in the world to come, but here on earth. And I'm here to declare that to you and to represent a death to myself and, and life that I have in him. Mm. Yeah, cool. That's right, that's right. Well, based upon your profession of faith, Asher, we baptize you today in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Buried in the likeness of his death, raised to new life. I could just sit, I could just sit and wait for all your goodness, hope to feel your presence. I could just stay. Just stay right where I am and hope to feel you, hope to feel something Never let these 
about you, but for me, that is remarkably refreshing to hear such a clear picture of those declarations of trust. It's just like a, a glimpse of the simple trust that I long for, a life of complete surrender. You know, I think Jesus knew his disciples would have a hard time trusting, that we would have a hard time trusting. And so he gave them and us a regular reminder of the radical way of this new covenant. In his final moments with them, as they ate together, he reminded them that he could be trusted. He grabbed some bread and he broke it. And letting them know that he would give his life for them, he handed to them and said, this is my body broken for you. Eat it and remember this. You can trust me. He picked up the cup and he said, this is proof of the new covenant. I will spill my blood for you. Drink it. Remember this. You can trust me. And from that point forward, followers of Jesus have gathered together regularly to remind themselves of this simple truth that we can trust him. Through the repetition of a simple act that we call Holy Communion. Here at Christ Community, we practice open communion, which means that you don't have to be a member of our church to partake, but the communion table is designed and reserved for those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus. Whether that happened 50 years ago or this moment, this very day, come to the table and awaken your senses again to this beautiful truth. Jesus can be trusted. Please come.